Mary. It's Alicia. And we are Merton and Morgan. And we have a special guest today, Vicki Lane. Hey, Vicki. Hey. Vicki is one of our good friends and also a very respected colleague. Vicki, your title is literacy coach, right? Yes. Okay. Vicki's a literacy coach at an elementary school. K and how long have you been a literacy coach? Um, well, actually, I've been a literacy coach for probably eight years. Before that, I was a literacy specialist. Then the money ran out. I went back in the classroom for half a day. And when I came back out, once we got more money, the principal changed my job to literacy coach. And we kind of created that together, like what the roles were. That's interesting. Yeah. Based on that article that we need to give you the article we've been reading about the difference between coach and specialist and Oh, it's a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge difference. The ILA has actually recognized that now and they have some guidelines in their teacher prep to show the difference between those things. And then mm -hmm. the other one is a coordinator, a program coordinator, which is another different role. It's another different role yeah. that sometimes we're asked to do them all. Exactly. And they mention that that it's a hybrid for a lot of people because of, you know, um, money and um, just understanding of what mm -hmm. the role should be. Yes. Okay, Vicki, while we have you here, we want to talk to you about your awesome book, Reading Instruction for Diverse Classrooms, Research-Based Culturally Responsive Practice. It's a mouthful. It is a really <laughs> mouthful. You can always tell when you write a book with a professor because it has a colon mm -hmm. in it and always. then a whole other explanation after the title. Yeah, there were two or three titles that we had tossed around at the beginning. Mostly yeah. she had tossed around at the beginning, but they all had a colon. They all had multiple parts. Yes, and we have to mention Ellen McIntyre because you wrote the book mm -hmm. with yes. her, right? Mm -hmm. And then you had another colleague who I don't know. Um, Nancy Hulin. She was actually a graduate student with Ellen at the time. She's now a professor at Western Kentucky University. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's amazing. She was a second grade teacher in JCPS for quite some time. Okay. So in the book, the second grade, the lower primary parts, she did that chapter. and Oh, uh, okay. But she contributed. We both contributed throughout. Okay. Makes sense. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the struggles that teachers are still having reaching their um, diverse learners, and especially um, in reading and writing workshop, we're, we're still struggling to kind of get that in hand and help people to see that that is um, culturally relevant, that the whole model is. Um, but what I was wondering just to kind of get you started is um, why did you guys think about writing this book? Was it something that you all saw happening at your schools or where did the idea come from? I think I had shared with Ellen when I was in that class, um, some, when I would do writing and papers to turn in in class, we often, she was very much about social justice, and I think the University of Louisville program at the time was, so we spent a lot of time talking about that. And when mm -hmm. she had approached, originally there were five people who were supposed to participate uh, in the book. There were three of us who were classroom teachers. Um, Nancy, I think at that time, had been out of the classroom, but I know she used her classroom perspective because she had just come out of the classroom, but she was also, and she may have still been in working with Ellen just at U of L, but... We um, were talking, we were sitting around talking, and I always talked about the model that we followed, and it was just the basic. At that time, we were using the Basil series that we were using, but the, the outline of the framework was something that the district was really spending a lot of time to 
make sure we had that. We had a lot of professional development around it. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of opportunities to have feedback because they also, the principals were involved doing walkthroughs and things. So we just naturally taught that. But as we, you know, continued to talk, we were talking about our schools and the populations that we have. And one lady was actually from another county, Mm -hmm. but she was very interested in you know, what we did. And when we talk about the difference in rural and urban, we really have basically the same problems. Just the faces might look a little bit different, but poverty is poverty. Okay. So when we're dealing with that, um, opportunities and access can still be a huge issue in the extremes of either environment. So it all, it kind of all came together because we were really dealing with the same problems that needed solutions. And that Mm -hmm. was how do we get our children to succeed? Okay. Um, I know that you're, I love looking at your table of contents when I um, am reviewing your books. I've read through it so many times, but... um, That's nice to hear. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you have, um, you know, how kids learn to read, why do they struggle, classroom community and discourse practices, which, you know, that's my favorite Mm -hmm. when we talk about dialogic instruction, which I want you to do. Um, Word study, which Alicia and I have talked about a ton, you know, how much that word study brings access for so many kids who haven't had that word play and, you know, naturally maybe as many of those opportunities to hear rhythm, rhyme, story, at least not the kind they're hearing at school um, and how to address that. And then we have, you know, fluency comprehension and um, writing. And you guys also brought in new literacies, which is, you know, the tech piece, which Mm -hmm. is so important and it's getting more important all the time. So um, I know just a minute ago you were saying some really great stuff, so I'm going to try to see if I can get you to say it again, okay? (laughs) We were talking about what's missing. What do we really see missing? I know when I look around my school, um, I'll have a conversation with my principal, and I'll say, this is what's missing. This thing right here is really missing, and if we can bring that into what everyone's doing, that's like step one, you know? So um, what do you think is missing? What do you see being the first step? Where do we need to go? One thing that that stands out to me is just a very basic misunderstanding of what differentiation really is because the word is tossed around in lots of literature today, like whatever you look at. And even, you know, admins who don't necessarily always have the same background, sometimes they can come from high school or, uh, you know, different yes. um, middle school and they come to elementary and they're even using that term. But one thing that the, the one of the problems is that people don't really understand what that means. It's not just everybody kind of going to their corners and doing the same thing. It's about a teacher who knows his or her students and they know how to bring that instruction about. So they know how to take it through that gradual release method where you teach what you need to teach and then you have to practice. And sometimes in the middle there, the guided part gets left out because mm-hmm. we kind of expect kids to just get it from the beginning. Even some of our students who typically fare very well with reading and writing, sometimes they're not going to get it because we're all in school trying to move forward. And so, and you know, life happens, attendance issues, there are gaps for many, many reasons, right. even with our most exactly. efficient students. So until we can really understand that we're trying to really find out what individuals know. And I think it scares teachers to think about like really digging in with differentiation because they feel like they can't accomplish 
what they need to accomplish or quote unquote cover what we need to cover because they see that huge piece of the that huge pie that they've got to get to but you can't get to that if you don't take some steps in between find out where your kids are and move things one thing that you'll probably notice when you read this book is that the words common core aren't in there because when we published it that came out like the very next year I was gonna say I noticed mm-hmm. that for the first time I've read mm-hmm. this book so often it's I think it was 2011 right when yes. you published it and common core came in 2012 mm-hmm. I remember that year it's like before and after right. and you start two years it takes a couple of years yeah. once you write something to get it actually yeah. out mm-hmm. so when it did come out we did have a discussion about that afterlife oops <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really pleased that we didn't because you know there's a lot of controversy someplace it comes and goes and I think in the long run it really is about a framework and you can insert whatever standards right. you need. Yeah, so whether you say. call it common core yeah. because the they're all it's all the same it's, these are the things that readers need to do right, right. it's very common core it, friendly <laughs> yeah you can write it as common core you can write it as state standards it's still what is what developmentally do kids need in order to become proficient readers and use and writers and use that in their daily lives. I think that term best practices is thrown around also. And what you were just saying, your book is full of best practice, no matter what the mandates or standards are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that may be another missing piece because I don't mean to put down teacher prep programs, but the reading portion of the teacher preparatory programs is small. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of um, understandings about reading and development. It's very scientific, (laughs) and it takes quite a bit of time to understand how a brain works. And we're talking about a brain here. Right. And it's, okay, here's some things to do, but do you really get down to really understanding about how a neurological pathway is created. You're not going to get that. You could teach for 10, 20 years. There have been some wonderful teachers who did not have that understanding, but what they did understand is that children need guidance and they need a consistent person to bring that about and understand how to pull them aside one-on-one, small group, and get that work done and have a vision of where it's supposed to go, not just trying to grab a standard here, grab a standard there. Yeah, that's funny you said that because mm-hmm. Lelisha and I talk about that a lot, the science, and I, you know, I wish mm-hmm. I had known the science sooner. I didn't it's get amazing. it until late in the game, but mm-hmm. once I did, it 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 changed everything for changed me. Changed everything. I think teachers a lot of times are treated like um, if they're nurturing enough and enthusiastic enough and they want kids to learn to read enough, that it's like talking like the kids will learn. They'll just come to it, you know, and mm-hmm. it's not like that. Our brain is literally not wired to read. Correct. We have to wire it, wire it mm-hmm. you know, yes. so no wonder it takes mm-hmm. so long for some kids to learn and then other kids to unlearn things that they accidentally got. It, it just reminds me of that term, you know, they say art, you know, it's either an art of teaching, but it really is a science. It really is a science. Um, and we don't really treat teaching as a science. That is and our learning mm-hmm. is a science. Mm-hmm. Why do we think that is? Why don't we do that? Why don't we get the science? I mean, it well, feels I, like sometimes we get close to it and then we back off, you mm-hmm. know? I, I think what you just, just said, if you're enthusiastic enough, if, you're, if the aesthetics of your room look a certain <laughs> way... If you um, can build relationships, yes. which is very important, but you can't stop there. You Once you have that relationship built, you have to know 
where to take it and and the end in mind like what is the end goal for this for this learner Mm -hmm. and do I even know that to make a pathway right (laughs) and then if there's a boulder in the way do I know how to remove that it's your it's years of years just constantly reading and researching and um and you have I, to I seek that, that. Too. Teacher has to, a teacher learn. has to seek that out on his or her own. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who may spend a little more time reading an article or having a collaboration with somebody who's experienced that, or if you go on to take more graduate courses, then you'll see it more. Mm-hmm. But it's not a part, and I don't understand why it's not like the first thing that a teacher, a new teacher, a pre-service teacher would have to understand that that would be included like in the very beginnings when you have those basic philosophies that they teach us mm-hmm. at the very beginning. And until that happens, I feel like it's going to continue. I feel like it's a little more political than that because it all deals with how much money there is to spend on people to teach you to do these things. And I think that sometimes we're trying to get people into these buildings yeah. Get them through. Quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we want to build on that energy enthusiasm that the new teacher brings. Yes. We want to get them in there. because And some things you really can't learn until you're in that environment. Like right. Some things sure, absolutely. And how to manage it on your own. Mm-hmm. You can't get that. But there really should be that scientific piece at the very beginning of any program to make you understand. And it pr- would probably change the trajectory of what they do decide to follow as they become teachers and how they think about what they're um, going about trying to sit down and understand that children get the whole group part and then when you sit down in the small group and you're guiding them in their zone of proximal development how that really actually works scientifically right that that I think it really amazes, is a thing it's really it a phenomenon people when they that light bulb comes on yeah, so. yeah. and I always quote you too on that <laughs> ZPD because you said one time well teachers have ZPDs too and that was just so like, true. I have chills just now. That was so mm-hmm. wise. And you, when you said that, I thought, yeah, we all do. I mean, we're only Absolutely. where we are. Coaches learn that quickly. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And yes. I think that we need to be, you know, fair to the teachers too. I mm-hmm. have talked to people in a higher ed about that because there's so many initiatives. It feels like we are backward engineering what didn't happen in teachers prep mm-hmm. sometimes. And the answer that I have gotten is, well, yeah, it's true, you're right. Um, And that they need more people, even at that level, who understand the Mm -hmm. science behind the reading. Because they have their, you know, they have philosophies, too, that they are very attached to. And they don't all Mm -hmm. necessarily, they're not all on the same page. And so that can cause confusion, you know, for the students. But then also fairly, one time I was told, well, think about how long it takes you to learn really how to teach a kid how to read, like how you have to be immersed in a classroom, how well you have to know the children, how well you have to understand assessment. How would we provide that necessarily in, Mm -hmm. you know, a practicum setting? I think they even need to rethink that, you know, learning, doing the reading practicum is almost like, needs to be like student teaching where it's yes. just all that and that's all you're doing and with the demise of in our state of the internship program I think it will cause more issues because mm-hmm. I think all those needs need to be aligned mm-hmm. well and I think too like you had just said a few minutes ago and then with the masters being an option mm-hmm. um, will teachers pay to get a masters if it's not required 
and then how are they going to further that mm-hmm. that knowledge? Because college costs Scary. continue to rise. Yes, yes and teachers I mean, go in continue. debt to get those um, mm-hmm. mandatory degrees that they were getting. Mm-hmm. And since we're on this topic, which is not <laughs> what I thought we'd talk about, but it's wonderful, so let's just go there. Um, if we had more, um, uh, more support, more, more motivation from the larger structure of school districts to be content specialists, a lot of people go and get that degree in administration right away or some kind of counseling or some sort of admin position because they're looking for the chance to, you know, support themselves mm-hmm. and their family, pay their student loans yes. and all of those things. So, you know, when I went back to get my second, you know, it's a second master's rank one, 30 degree, 30 hours, I did it in literacy, but everybody kept saying, why are you doing that? What are you going to do with it? You know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's not very motivating. It's not. To teachers, I think. It's not. I don't know if I have words to go on with that. I've, I've been through it, so I understand that it's really important. But until that is clear to people who are designing these programs and people who are going to write the checks for literacy specialists. Right. You know, I mean, if you look at, um, we were talking about the NAEP test that's referenced. I mean, they always talk about reading scores being flat across the nation. So why aren't we, why are we trying to approach it the way we're trying to approach it? We should be trying to approach it by having people who are trained with the understanding of how a brain works (laughs) to teach people to do this from a different perspective. If we're just going to try to throw a few books at people and then decry the summer slide every year, we're going to end up in this same boat again and again and again. And with our children coming in, not kindergarten ready, that's already, we've already got an issue from the beginning. When do we make sure that when people become parents, they have an understanding of what needs to happen? Yeah. Some things that need some very basic things that could be put in place. Right. And that we have resources to share. We have libraries, we have pediatricians who are willing to invest in those things but why is that not if we know all these things why are we not putting those things into what's the block what's the block we ask that question a lot like we have the science why do we ignore it (laughs) we Mm -hmm. we know what to do and we continue to Mm -hmm. ignore what what we know works and what kids need we have that discussion mary and i have that discussion a lot it's part of the reason we started this podcast, this consulting company, because we just see it over and over. And, and like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, this, these gaps don't have to exist. We know what to do. We just can, and it's hard. It, it is hard. And it's, um, and it's, um, it tugs at your heartstrings. It's emotional and it's, it's tiring, but it's so worth it. And these are people that are going to grow up and have professions. And so why are we not investing in them now? And we know how to do that. Yes. Um, so there's really no reason for for there to be an illiteracy issue in the United States. In we, 2019. We, we know what to do. <laughs> Everything we know. And so it's just, I think that's our calling. Yeah. <laughs> we just got to get um, out there one kid at a time. We just, yes, <laughs> definitely. Yes. One kid, um, one teacher. That's right. One yes. There you go. Yes. Now you're quoting the law. 
<laughs> All right, so let's talk about workshop for a minute because okay. you were talking about um, differentiation. And then, you know, Alicia and I also talk about how writing workshop, especially, but I'm putting reading workshop in there too. Yes. If you ever teach that way, you it automatically differentiates. You know, I remember loving to teach writing to my whole class because that was a time when I felt like I literally could get to every kid at their mm -hmm. level and didn't know as much about reading workshop at the time. Now I can see how I could have better used that model in reading too, um, but it was intermediate. So it's kind of, you know, there wasn't as much talk about doing it at that level, but it kind of differentiates, like if you use the workshop model, do you see that as a way into the differentiation piece for teachers or do you think it's too much to start there or what do you think? No, I absolutely agree. I think you need to dive in and set up your classroom with the right framework. And then as you gain fluency at teaching those principles, it's already laid out, you begin and you start small. And I think people sometimes feel like they've got to do it all week one. And you don't have to do it all week one. You have to make sure that you are getting yourself on the type of schedule that meets the needs. We have to make sure that we're focused on a purpose. If you're just going to call kids over, you're not prepared, you don't really know where this lesson's going to go, you're not going to be able to get done what you need to do. If you're prepared and you're, you understand the idea of trying to... Uh, go and look at one thing and find out if a child can do this thing and then build on the next and the next and the next, you can do it better, reading and writing. But I do think it sets up an opportunity for you to understand quicker. If you would go ahead and set up your framework, you can understand a little bit more quickly how to manage what the other kids are doing mm -hmm. while you are trying to get at this goal. But you have it all planned out in your head so that when something does arise, somebody won't sit down or somebody gets called down or somebody's absent that you're supposed to meet with that day. Mm -hmm. You've got a backup plan and you know how to approach that without a framework and understanding of what's supposed to happen in this allotted amount of time. You're never going to get there without an understanding of that. And it sets itself up for differentiation too because you know which kids go together, which kids mm -hmm. will work well together, which children might fall rise or fall on some particular standard or topic and you can pull them and you know meet their needs but that it takes time and admins have to understand that they have to give people some grace to get there and they've got to put people in their buildings specialists coaches who can be the uh, be boots on the ground in those classrooms we've got as coaches a lot of data to do yeah a lot and it gets in the way of actually observing and being able to have conversations when you can't be a consistent presence in classrooms. And if you've got a building like mine, we've got 18, 19 classrooms, and you're spending all of your time on some other things, you know, we have to reprioritize how we're, you know, spending our time, where we're putting the people who have a good rapport with teachers mm -hmm. who build relationships there too. And that's a model for how a teacher builds a relationship with their students, the types of questions you ask, making sure you have a purpose for your conversation with them and that they have some voice and choice in it mm -hmm. because they have to be, they, teachers will resist if you try to tell them what they need. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them what they need, you've observed what they need and you have to be able to kind of bring that together for them. It's still the same thing as another model of that. And modeling is where things happen at the very beginning. That's what starts all the learning for all of us. 
that answer the question? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, great. you were saying the same oh, thing about oh, asking the teachers you work with, what what is it that they need? Didn't you? Mm-hmm. You were telling me about yeah, that, I, about how you really felt like you needed them to answer that before you could go on and do anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we were having trouble getting um, small guy to reading up and going, and my question was, is it just that, do you not know how to do it? Do you know how to do it and you're just not doing it? And I was just trying to ask, how can I support you? Like, do you need some, is it the day one, the day two? And through those conversations, it was, well, guided writing's a little, I'm not sure how to do the guided writing piece, which, right, is one of the hardest pieces, I feel like, um, in in the guided reading model. So, yeah, it's just having those conversations and saying, okay, what is it that you need? I've been in there, either it's happening or it's not, or um, sometimes you don't know. And in, in our case, it wasn't happening um, as often. And so we just had a conversation about why that was um, so that we can address it and, and work together to, um, mm-hmm. to fix it because the kids need it. Um, and then that conversation led into like what you were talking about workshop, what, what the other kids are doing, that, that purposeful work. Um, we, we talked about initially it's set up because you need them working so that you can pull those small groups but very quickly your small group work lends itself into what they're doing independently because they should be transferring those skills and strategies and practicing that outside and when my teacher said no one no one has ever explained that connection to me before or that intentionality before Mm -hmm. I okay that makes sense to me so it's not just keeping them busy that work is really meaningful work, and that's where that engagement, I think, comes from the kids. I agree 100%. Which is important. But if you don't really understand workshop or the purpose of where they're going, that's then you think mm-hmm. it is just kind of busy work or center play. Or, Do you remember when the standards came out? And I remember I had one teacher who went through. She was always on top of things, but she went through and she made a list of everything and she started trying to check off every little standard that they did in the classroom. She had pages I remember and people pages doing and that. checklists. We were encouraged to do that for a we while. We were encouraged. Yeah. Make sure I always thought there was everything. insanity. I yeah. was like, I cannot do that. I would not <laughs> expect anybody else to yeah. do that. And you know, the the first thing that happened was, oh, I've checked off three things, but I did twenty five things. Yeah. <laughs> right. In the same twenty minutes of group time. Mm-hmm. How do I account for that? How do I prove that I did that? Where's the evidence? And so trying to make sure when you're talking about vision, how do we balance that? Because it's there are a lot of standards to cover, but how do they blend naturally? And do our teachers have clarity around that? Right. I think they don't still. I mean, as long as we've had the Common Core standards, I think there's still a lot of confusion about what they mean and Mm -hmm. how, you know, how to measure um, mastery of that. I just, I think it's hard for a lot of people. It can be hard Mm -hmm. for me, too, sometimes, you know. I have to get my books out and look at, well, what is this standard really about? What's the vocabulary? I need to make sure the kids know. Um, It takes a lot of thinking. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely feel like until until the way um, states are assessed and schools are assessed, Common Core is so much deeper than the way we 
are assessing it, or at least in our state. Uh, Multiple choice and short answer, many of those ELA standards are either oral standards or they have to be proved in writing. Mm -hmm. And multiple choice doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think until that changes, it's going to be hard for people to really understand because they're expected to go deep, but... On a timed test. But the assessed test, right? Exactly, and mm-hmm. um, the the test language. You know, mm-hmm. working with English learners, they are always confused Absolutely. about how the questions being asked. No matter how many times we try yeah. to help them, prepare mm-hmm. them, walk them through the STEM. You know, what is this question really asking you? Mm-hmm. It becomes such a part of whether mm-hmm. they succeed or not if they understand. And why? Why do we need to do that? Don't we just want to know if they understand the standard? Why do we need to test whether or not they understand the question right. wording about the standard? It's like the math test. It's really a reading test because they have right. to read. Oh, yeah. Everything. Oh, my gosh. We could talk a long time about that. <laughs> you know, That's a whole other podcast, isn't it? That's the next one. Yes. That's right. Um, but it's a sensitive topic with teachers, which sure. feeds into them wanting to do so much whole group stuff because they feel as if they're covering, again, quote, yeah. unquote, with the air quotes, covering this material yeah you might be saying it but how do you know they're doing it and they're able to do it and they'll be able to sustain it over time right and right. you don't and you have to work with the grade below you and the grade above you mm-hmm. and your schools need to be on the same page you have got to have that together or you're just going to keep starting over every year when you don't have to right why yeah. would you want to do that but we do it's a difficult too in our population because of the high transients rate too so we've got kids coming and going. So there's new ones coming in that you have to learn their mm-hmm. ways. And we're still, you know, kind of dealing with that. But if you have your basic core of students down and you understand them and know them, it, because you spent time with them in small group, it makes it so much easier. And you can ask any teacher in my building that, and they will repeat the same thing, and I did not tell them. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't tell them to say it? Mm, I don't know. All right, we're talking nice. about talking, so let's go to dialogic instruction, since that's my pet topic um you have a section in your book about it and i know um i've talked to teachers about this part in your book because it's not in a lot of the literature that you read there's Mm -hmm. really a lack of good solid research-based um strategies descriptions about why it's important um what it what it brings Mm -hmm. to the students so um, not to test your knowledge of your book, but <laughs> do you have any thoughts about, you know, um, why why you guys made sure you wrote a whole section of the book about dialogic instruction? And I will say that, and I wrote this in a blog about your book, that that numbered heads together strategy is just one that you guys talked about. And I have mm-hmm. seen that completely change a classroom. Like, they, the kids go from hiding and pretending to really being invested because everybody wants to be, if they're going to stand up, they want to know that they've got what the team thinks, you know, it just really builds engagement and it makes kids help each other. And, um, so that's just one strategy, but, um, back to the question, what are you thinking about that? What's, why is that important? We made sure that that was in there. And I know I'm amongst fans of this particular philosophy that oral reading I mean, sorry, oral language is the bridge that gets kids started to learn. So if they can speak about it, that's where you start to get them. Because if you're starting out as a teacher, 
you're reading a text to the students, modeling things. I mean, there's a point there. They don't go straight to writing about it and doing a five-paragraph essay or whatever people are doing <laughs> these days. They have to have a conversation about it, and they have to attach it to their schema and understand that. For kids, that's talking about it, especially our kids today, because everything with them is there are so many things coming at them on television, social media, the sites that they're on, things come very fast and they're talking to whoever they're sharing this with mm -hmm. more so than they're sitting at home in a quiet space reading, uh, you know. Right, they're rarely writing. doing that. I can they're tell you from my own kids that. who have a mom who really wants them to read. They're mm -hmm. mostly visual learners right now. It's right. audio and it's it's visual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we talk about our language learners. We don't, um, and like every kindergarten student is a language learner. I mean, we're trying to learn this together. <laughs> we're right. trying to figure things out. But we, what's the person that you want to do? We sit down and we talk around a book. That's was always my favorite time. We would read and then we would talk about how we felt about that. What's our favorite parts to start off. And that's what kind of gets them in. And then you go in for what the author's purpose is and those meanings that are a little bit deeper, but children have to talk about that first. Mm -hmm. And we, um, I can't remember if it was earlier, we were talking about kids who, I was talking to me about the kids that were the shy kids. We were talking about some kids that were doing an activity, they didn't want to dance in the activity, all the classes up. And there used to be a time when we were like, get out there, dance, and now we kind of let them do their thing and we try to go about another way finding out if they can do certain things mm -hmm. it's the same thing with this you've got to let kids talk to one another first because they feel much more confident in a small and sometimes they just don't know why are we going to sit there and just wait and we don't like wait time either so we'll sit there and we'll give them like we'll pay lip service to wait time and we'll be like <laughs> and then we'll move on to the next person yeah. very quickly. You didn't even think of it that fast. I had right. that experience in a meeting once. I was like, I don't know the answer. And they were like moving on. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know. I needed more wait time. And I could have perfectly come up with that answer. But it's the same with children. And when they talk about how powerful that practice is, like in simple practice like turn and talk, where they just turn to the next person. You know, sometimes there's an issue with two kids that don't like each other or neither yeah. one of them are, you know, mm -hmm. pretty proficient, but they've had the opportunity. And then you as a teacher during that time, you're not over doing the calendar or something different. You're watching who's doing that. And then you reposition children or you go up and you sit in the middle of the group and say, well, tell me what you think mm -hmm. and try to, you know, draw that out. So just very simple activities like that. And then moving it into like small groups with a number of heads together that is the biggest confidence builder I've ever seen with adults and children. I do a PD with the book, and I always make sure that we do that activity because adults will come in because they come from all over the district, so they don't know me. The people in my school know me, so they kind of, we've already met in groups and talked they're about a thousand, yeah. and they're used to that. <laughs> they're used to that yeah. because our school promotes that often. But you've got people coming, they don't know each other. Some are high school, some are elementary, middle school. So what are you going to do to get them to talk? You have to make them do that. And they don't know exactly. Like, you have to post the instructions for how to do it and take them through these practices. It's yeah. just like with the kids because nobody's going to get those things, like, immediately. Or think about how many times you have to learn. Think about when you get on the computer and you're trying to figure something out. It takes time and time and time again to figure that out. Right. And we don't have to just jump to, oh, they didn't talk, so we're done with that strategy. Because that's a, another big part of this. Yeah. We don't want to wait because we want to cover that stuff. And They didn't talk or they didn't talk the right way that I wanted them right. to talk. That's something that I know I have to do with kids very purposefully mm -hmm. is give them talk stems and have them 
practice, yes. and it sounds so and fake okay. in the beginning, but, it, you know, the here, point to this one, okay, I heard what you said, but here's what I would like to add, you know, and they think it sounds really funny, and they laugh about it, but, um, and then they, they get their own language for saying those mm-hmm. things, so it doesn't sound so stilted, mm-hmm. but they literally do not know how to negotiate the most simple difficulty between themselves or how to disagree um, with mm-hmm. someone or they, they don't they don't even know how to tell someone their ideal is good. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just blurting out the next thing and it's, you know, they're not seeing that out in the general society right now. It's not like if they don't get it in school, they'll see it in the general public. It's just mm-hmm. not happening right now. I right. mean, I'm hopeful that'll change, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I just don't know where are they going if we can't help them be able to have right. conversations with each other about what they're thinking. And there's a huge piece of the standards on it, and nobody ever wants to talk about it, or how it fits <laughs> I into I talk about it by myself, <laughs> to myself. <laughs> we, I will talk about, you know, we won't even, oh yeah, there's that, when they present, or oh yeah, there's that, when they have to defend something, but where is that throughout the day, in your small group, in your, I tell teachers a lot, you know, we have this thing with the stations where they want to start something brand new and to stick it out there. And then when the kids can't do it or they start talking, then they're mad. But it's like, well, have you done that before? Have you told them how to have that type of conversation? If you're expecting them to talk to one another, you have to teach them everything you want. Even if the teacher before you did a great job with having them do that, yeah. they come into your classroom and it's a new expectation. And I think one of the things I mentioned in the book were the accountable talk cards, which had stems. Mm-hmm. I use those with adults. We have to use that in our own PDs and our staff meetings. We have to use things like that to enrich the conversation or they're never going to learn how to do it. And if you're expecting them to learn it from the shows they're watching on television, no. you are sadly mistaken. They're learning the opposite of what mm-hmm. we need them they're to They're listening to a lot of oral language, but they are not taking that in. There's no interaction. Right. And is it really the things that you want them, the way you want a conversation to go? No. No, usually mm-hmm. not. I like the questions you have in the book um, to ask for a teacher to ask herself or himself about their the discourse in their classroom. Uh, what who does most of the talking? What kind of talk is it? Do the children respond to each other or just to me, the teacher? Mm-hmm. What types of questions do the students ask? Um, what type of questions do I ask? And what are the length and quality of children's responses? Mm-hmm. I think that it's. Those are pretty easy questions to ask yourself and kind of um, get a get a sample of how the discourse is in your own room because you are the you are the most experienced oral language <laughs> producer in your classroom, <laughs> you know. So you're always on um, on notice for helping model that and, and scaffold and support mm-hmm. the kids for that. Yeah, you guys have a lot about questioning in here too. I think is really important the well, types of questions that teachers ask yes and they carry across content areas we have to make sure that that's happening too and as far as questioning goes and even like there's a real initiative now a really popular initiative with the circle up and check-in meetings and those things where we're teaching kids how to talk to one another and how to you know, so that we can find out in a, you know, kind of a quick manner how people are feeling because they come in with so many burdens mm-hmm. on their hearts and we want them to have a good learning day. So we'll get them together and we'll, you know, do that. And so we have to even make sure that we're talking to them about 
types of questions we're asking. We want to be very careful with the types of questions we're asking them. And what are the types of questions we want them to ask themselves? Okay. And will you hear those types of questions when they're referring to a character they like in a book? Like, we've got to connect it like those ways. Because ultimately, when you, I, when I read, I'm connected to a character. It may be a topic I like, but if I'm not connected to one of those characters, that book goes back on the shelf and I don't finish <laughs> it. Because I'm trying to figure out, and maybe that's just from having read so much. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what, that's what attracts me to it is how they're feeling. We want kids to do the same thing. That starts with them talking about themselves. We don't, right. we don't talk so much about the connection strategy too much anymore, but that's really why you pick up a book and why you finish one. I mean, you may pick it up for one reason, but you finish it because you had a connection to what was going on in there and until you become a reflective type of person who asks questions. And sometimes teachers, when they ask themselves those questions, they don't like the answers. <laughs> and they'll yeah. default back to the other things. Yeah. And try to, oh, I'll work on that next time. But really... You know, this is what I need to do to keep things rolling. Um, I was speaking of um, children being able to have conversations about books and connecting to characters. I went back to that Pathways to the Common Core from um, Lucy Calkins, and Mm -hmm. um, they had talked about the speaking. The one of the main purposes of the speaking and listening standards was by the end of fifth grade for students to be able to have a book club and run that discussion independently without prompts from the teacher, without, um, you know, trying to say, well, tell me more. What do you think that that's just a natural, um, way for them to pick up a book and have a discussion? Because if, if you're teaching the speaking and listening standards from the beginning, from kindergarten, that's just going to be a natural progression something that they do automatically like if we were to read your book for instance and just have a conversation like we're having now it's not natural for kids and and one of the main purposes of those standards was to be able to do just that by the end of fifth grade and in my building that does not happen um because they are teachers are pressured to have the students write in response to reading so quickly Mm-hmm. Um, and they feel pressure yes. to skip that oral part, which you said mm-hmm. earlier is so important. They they can't write about it if they haven't talked about it first. And that brings us back to understanding how a brain. Yeah. Yes. That's works. the bedrock and the mm-hmm. foundation. Plus, if you think about it, we are hardwired to talk. Yeah. So yes. that's the thing kids can resonate to the easiest. If we give them the access to the school type mm-hmm. language they can do that without yes. all the struggle of putting it down on paper or reading it off the, off the page. It just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Why would you not constantly dip down into the what's natural for them and then bring them along to something that's going to be a little bit more challenging? Especially considering the number of students who are struggling with being able to process print. Yes. Right. It's a large number, and it grows every day. That's true. Why do you think that is? There was the one study about how the kids um, before the age of four were spending so much time on the iPad mm-hmm. that it was causing problems later. I think that's starting to show up a lot more because mm-hmm. technology is so accessible. Tablets are easy to get now. Right. Um, Babies are using mm-hmm. phones and yes. tablets. And they talk about how that's really not the way that you should go. And there's a lot of scientific evidence 
that shows that, but nobody believes anything anymore. Everybody's skeptical <laughs> right. of everything. You, and you should be skeptical because everything on the internet is not true. Sure. But, um, you know, you have to find reliable sources that talk about things and really want to understand mm-hmm. what's going on. If you're just there to just, you know, kind of keep moving through your day with the way you think you were taught or, yeah. you know, this is how we did it back in my uh, day. It was fun for um, me. I learned. <laughs> yeah. And you did learn, but there were a lot of kids who didn't. Right. But you didn't know that. Exactly. And this is what, right. that's what yes. I have. I have a conversation yes. about that with uh, my sisters. Like, oh, yeah, we went to the top group. I'm like, yeah, but where are those kids who are in the third group now? Think about where they are when you see them on Facebook. What's happening to them? Right. And why are they in certain positions? Right. And like, oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Why did they, you know, yeah. go on a certain course Right. Um, different than the one that you went on if they did? You know, sometimes that happens. and Yeah. But you don't know those things because you all were separated into different groups. So you did not see. Right the struggle that they were going through and how that impacted how they felt about themselves mm-hmm. in school where everybody to be successful in school you have to know how to read or you get made fun of mm-hmm. so you try to hide it you try to go back different ways class clown you know just being really quiet and hoping that you fly under the radar mm-hmm. but you never get to enjoy books and kids who struggle can enjoy books too there are lots of options and opportunities Absolutely. and we have I mean, as educators, we have got to make sure they get it. And if you're a person who's just so insistent that they read on their grade level text, well, if they're two, three grade levels behind, they can't do it. And you've got to find some audio text. If you want them to know that content, you've got to do some, spend some time with them, helping them. But we still have a lot of um, resistance to that. A I lot of resistance. Yeah. Not just articles either. They need to read. I mean, fifth grade needs to, there are some awesome picture books out there and <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember going to the, the library and that's where I would learn about all these new books and it's I feel like teachers librarians don't have time they're too busy doing STEM activities which math and science is important yes um, but I think a lot of other initiatives kind of overshadow mm-hmm. and they don't get that love of of reading they don't just I remember being read to and then we checked out books that's what we did mm-hmm. during library time and that is when I really thought oh okay boxcar children oh okay I, I probably would mm-hmm. never been introduced to that yeah. series um and I don't think they get enough of those kind of book tastings mm-hmm. um not because teachers don't want to they feel the pressure of the time and everything that has to um to be covered it's like, well, I can't do that because they're a certain grade level and we have to be analyzing this article. That's or... it. And that really, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking about it a little while ago. I, you know, I work with kids who are below grade level always. And then sometimes the teachers will want to know if I'm doing grade level things with them. And, you know, I know they're well-intended, and they're always saying they're worried about assessment coming. Mm -hmm. But kids don't learn standards by osmosis. They don't just get exposed to it. I don't know where that exposure thing came from. I don't see any any science behind that. You don't just learn standards by being exposed to text that's over your head, that you feel you've got that effective filter because you know you can't read it, Mm -hmm. and now you're in this small group, and you're supposed to perform somehow, you know, I always tell them I'm reading with them on their level and I'm embedding that as best mm-hmm. I can. That's the only time of the day, third, fourth, and fifth grade, when they get to read books that are on their level. And they love it. Mm-hmm. They love it so much. I love it. 
And it just bothers me because I think, well, the teachers are bringing them into these small guided reading groups, but they're doing grade level stuff with them. Again, I guess because they feel like it's going to be assessed. But how's that working? I mean, none of those kids are doing great on state assessments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not like they have and, and that's evidence not to reading. show that right. it worked. Right. That's yeah, not well, yeah, guided reading. And, you know, the... the um, we were, I felt like we were doing really well with guided reading a few years ago. And then here comes the kids have to struggle philosophy, which it's true. You mm -hmm. need a challenge in your zone. Mm -hmm. And I had this conversation um, with the principal when all this was coming. And I was like, yes, kids need grade level work, but they're getting grade level work. They're getting grade level text in science. They're getting it in social studies. They're getting it um, when you are, you know, reading aloud to them. They're getting that thing, but there has to be a time where they can work at their level and feel successful. And we're really, it's a really small part of the day when you think about how long mm -hmm. a guided reading yes. group is or how much time they spend. Right. Because even in, you know, literacy stations, they're doing other activities too. But there has to be that time. And yes, they have to navigate things, but giving them more grade level or higher work. It's not going to happen. I had a teacher who was, you know, main idea, main idea. Yeah, main idea is something that kids need to know. But if you're giving this kid who's on a first grade reading level these fifth and sixth grade level articles. Passages, yeah. And then giving idea. them more and more and more of it, what are we doing here? And what is your expectation for this child? Where do you expect them to go? Because they can't go. And you're frustrated because you, as the teacher, yeah. keep giving them these things and they're not successful right. on them. And then we get into kid blaming and we get yes. into yes. Um, they're not ready, they're not right, let me divide my kids up and you go on They didn't here. listen, you weren't paying attention. So and so's great this. at teaching the low kids. Let's send them all there. I mean, yeah. those aren't, that's not, then they're not even a part of their own classroom workshop time. Mm -hmm. right. it's, you know, I mean, we're always reinventing that conversation. I have to help to stamp that out every year. We have to talk about it so much just because. That keeps coming up again and again and again because people feel frustrated when things aren't happening. Yes. And that gets back to a basic misunderstanding about who we're teaching. Right. And right. what are these specific difficulties and where, as a staff, across years do we need to get? Yeah. It's not just you this year. You can't get a kid who's a non-reader to proficiency in a year. Not right. going to happen. Right. There was some problem in there if they do and somebody's fudging some results because that's not happening <laughs> and people feel that pressure and I try to help alleviate that a lot but at some point you've got to grasp that on your own as right. a teacher give yourself a break and think okay what can we do and that's why whenever I'm doing professional development the progressions are always there yes. you have to have that document yes. on your desktop yes <laughs> ready to to move when you're a coach, I do that ma'am and not to move into a whole nother section but right. don't you think that goes back to equity and access like we we have this pressure to make sure you are doing a fifth grade standard but if your understanding is on a first grade level we have to give you access to what you can do mm -hmm. right i i feel like there are different agendas but 
we're not using our common sense mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And, and how's that accessible mm-hmm. and equitable for that learner? And it's try not. dealing with a parent who has a child who's not on grade level, and they've been getting S's and O's and A's oh, all yeah. the way up through. And then here, a teacher, a real teacher comes through mm-hmm. with knowledge of what's going on, and they're mm-hmm. like, well, they're getting asses and they're right. ready at home. Well, are they? What's mm-hmm. wrong with that teacher? They want to know, mm-hmm. right? If it's the teacher's fault, then. Mm-hmm. I um, I was thinking of something while you guys were saying that, but now I can't remember what it was. <laughs> There's so many tangents, though. I know, <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. It all fits just, together. I mean, it, it all relates. It together. Um, I think the schools are set up for kids to be finished learning to read by third grade. And then when they get into later third grade, fourth and fifth grade, they're set up as in the standards that the teachers are be, are given all depend on kids reading to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that comes in because there's still so many kids that need to learn to read in third grade, fourth grade and fifth mm-hmm. grade and on beyond that middle school. And so if we aren't honest about it and we don't say, look, they still haven't learned to read, we have to dedicate some part of the day to mm-hmm. that the rest of the day can be reading to learn yes but don't um, you think we're always reading to learn and learning to read tell me more go ahead <laughs> well I, <laughs> I, I just think because, because I work I work closely with with um the, the early um the early learners in my building and and I, I feel like that's kind of an outdated mindset Okay. You know, where they they read to, um they learn to read and then they read to learn. I feel like from the very beginning when they're learning to read, they are reading to learn. They're learning something always when mm-hmm. they're learning to read yeah. and then as adults, when I pick up something new mm-hmm. or I'm I'm learning on some kind of um digital device, mm-hmm. I'm always learning to read that whether it's an e-reader or whether it's some, do you know what I mean? How to I just, make a podcast and put how it on to, SoundCloud. Right. I mean, we're always, <laughs> yeah. those are interchangeable, Yeah, I think. And I've never thought about that. That could opinion. probably fall into that category of what's an educational myth, that there's a distinction between the two. Yeah. I mean, so maybe I that's just something overlap. we've gotten like used to saying. Mm-hmm. But really, not so much. I've yeah. never really thought of that at all. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Because well. our five-year-olds are reading to learn. They are. They are. They really are. They're learning yes. to read and reading to learn. And our ELLs do that, too. Yeah, they're absolutely. They're learning the language, they, and they're yes. learning to read, and they're being asked to read yes. to learn in that language all at the same time. They do all of that. I love it. Have, have you all read that book, um, Still Learning to Read? It's for third through sixth grade. It's I know of it. Mm-hmm. Still Learning to Read. And it's in the, I think it's in the very first chapter they're talking about a fourth grade classroom and she's, um, and the author's just talking about how, how comical it is when like you're saying people in the fourth and fifth grade, they're expecting them to be these proficient readers. Mm -hmm. And she put it in a way that just, it was an aha for me. I've never thought of it like that. And she said, but they really only been reading for two or three years. Right. Yeah. And she said, how can we expect readers who've only been reading for two to three years to be these proficient readers, and I was just like, "You're right. They have only been read. I mean, think about that. If you yeah. only do something for That's two true. or three years, you're not a master. You're still an apprentice, st- very oh, much, right? <laughs> or a novice, even so. Still. That I, I will never forget that sentence in that book because it was just 
Yes. Yeah, it was that, such an aha to me. <laughs> that reminds me of Proust and the Squid again, too, when they yes. said it took 2,000 years for us to develop the system that we use to read and write, and we expect kids to master it in almost 2,000 days. It's almost the same yes. amount of time, mm-hmm. but in days, and it's like, yeah, we do. We That's do. That's crazy. And we want them to do that while they have a handheld device all day long. <laughs> yeah, and while they're worrying about yeah, things that kids shouldn't be worrying about. Yeah, a lot of them, yeah, they have adult mm-hmm. problems. Lots of adult responses to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, that was great. We've been at it time. for a little while. Do you, <laughs> does anybody have a parting thought or or something you want to make sure you say about this topic? Um, I think we've said a lot. I think we have there's just so many things i don't know if one parting thought like you just blew my mind with that yeah <laughs> that i'm still learning to read i have to think about that quite a bit more but i really just feel like if we don't as educators at least try we have to consider ourselves needing to learn a friend of mine i had a book yesterday on literacy coaching and we were in between the staff meetings and i had it when i was looking through and she was like just a lifelong learner. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hey, I kind of do fit that category because I'm trying to figure out technology and how to make it and put it into my coaching. And yeah. So that's what, I mean, still at this point, I've been coaching a long time and I still have lots of areas where I need mm-hmm. to be sure. fluent. But I had to, like, I totally had to buy that book on my own and go after that myself because I saw that need in my own work. And teachers have to see the need in their own work and reach out to people that can help them to get there. Yeah, I hear teachers in my building say a lot of times how frustrated they are that they aren't being professionally developed the way they want to in their Mm -hmm. building. But the truth is, and I try to tell them, you guys are at the point where you need to be Mm -hmm. professionally developing each other because Mm -hmm. there really isn't an administrator who knows more about teaching like fifth grade than you do teacher X here. You Mm -hmm. are a phenomenal fifth grade teacher if there's more you need to know, it's really, you got to do it. You and your friends have to come together and you have to, you know, and yes. I think they don't like thinking about that. I think it's kind of scary or they want to think, you know, there's always someone downstairs in the office who knows more and can like say, mm-hmm. here's what you do. But it's really not like well, that. That after person a point. does not have the time to get to everybody. Right. <laughs> they really don't. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're one person in a building sometimes, if that. And sometimes people are sharing people, and yeah, you know. And if we allow ourselves to get into the mindset that I always have to go to them, yes, and like I don't have anything to contribute, right? That just kind of you pull your own self down, not appreciating what you have to bring to the table. If you right. made it through a teacher program, you've done some things, absolutely right. Yeah, right. it's not yeah, you know, easy. It's mm-hmm. not easy to manage it all. And if you've made it through one year of teaching. Crazy, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got something to offer somebody else, and you've got to make the time for it. Because if you're waiting to get out of that staff meeting early, you can think, <laughs> you can think twice. Yeah. You've got to go home. You've got families, or yeah. you've got, you know, to take care of your home. You know, there's always something every day that yeah. is yes. going on in somebody's life, and you. But you have to figure out in those little gap times that you have how to move forward with yeah. it. And we're at that point in education, you know, dollars for education are not coming in like they used to come in. Right. And so, you know, you got to do this on your own, but you have to understand the value of it too. Exactly. And you have to have the kind of attitude about going after that. Yes. 
Vicky, thank you. Yes, Vicky. Thank you. I feel so honored to be so, so good at podcasting, <laughs> Vicky. Thank you for coming. Well, thanks again. And um, we're going to be great. posting this one. And um, let's all say good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.